Old Vines Written by Sevdrak and read by Literarian Chapter 13 It Begins at the Mouth Part 1 It all begins in the mouth. What a pretentious way to start a chapter. And yet, this is the most straightforward way to say it. All of this comes back to the mouth. I certainly will be the first to reassure my readers that the enjoyment of a good wine is enough on its own. There is no need to step down into the micro-details of flavour and vintage if you simply enjoy the taste and the act. Wine itself carries the taste of the grape, the feel of the soil, the heat of the sun and chill of the rain. You do not need to be able to plot and label to enjoy the product as it is. What I describe here is an art and a science and it can certainly be learned, but consider it the icing on an already delectable cake or an accessory on a perfectly lovely outfit. Wine is a community. That one sip carries so many things along with it. It is enough to take and drink, to swallow the sacrament of the vineyard to enjoy without further analysis. At times I myself will just partake without comparison or definition because a glass of wine in hand is like having the clever laughter of a friend on demand. It's a warm fire and a soothing summer rain. Wine is enough. It begins in the mouth. Curious, isn't it, that this particular art is the act of linking the flavours on our taste buds with the language inside our thoughts. We drink and then we speak. We name these things, describe them, write them down with ink on paper. A wine can taste incredible, but it's when we start to speak of it that it opens up and grows. Here is the blackberry. Here is the burnt leather of tannins. Here the buttery peach. Here the acid of the grapefruit. The sweetness of honeysuckle. We tie it to other living things. Fruits, flowers, spices and woods, like metaphors. The poetry is in the mouth. Put an example here for Gabriel later. The first thing to understand about wine tasting is that it is, in fact, a trick between your mouth and the art of the words we use to describe a taste. You cannot put raspberry and plum and oak into a glass and make a cabernet. There are no peaches in your chardonnay. What you're looking for is something light. Does the taste in the glass remind you of eating a raspberry? Does it taste like currant pie? Are there hints of the soil, of pepper or coriander, of smoke or leather? The flavour on your tongue will remind you of something. 
it begins in the mouth and evolves into the throat. Use your words. Oh, bugger shit, Gabriel is going to hate this entire section. AZ Fell is not having a very good day. Just pig one, Warlock says to him, with the kind of worn-out tone only an assistant who has tried every option at his disposal, only to have his elderly, crotchety boss reject every single one can use. I don't want my face on the block, Aziraphale tells him again. He can feel the headache starting at the base of his skull. I've already been recognized twice out here, and we haven't even gotten into Napa. Satan wept, says Warlock. Zira, I know, I get it, okay? But Michael said on it, just one photo. Michael can, can go, Michael can go eat says Aziraphale, well aware that words are failing him. Warlock turns the tablet right side up and starts flicking through again. As, for fuck's sake, pick the one you hate the least and stop being such a miserable shit. Please. Aziraphale drops his face into his hands. He has no idea why it bothers him so much to put a face to his professional name, but oh, he hates it. Blogging his adventures in wine country has been a huge success. His readership has exploded, and there are now so many comments on his posts that Warlock has to filter them, sending Aziraphale only the most interesting ones to read and occasionally reply to. The problem is, many of his readers are in the general area of California, and Aziraphale is afraid that if they discover where he and Warlock are going, let alone where they're staying, what a nightmare! He'll never have a moment of peace again. He had been recognized by a vintner at St. Sorbrace, but it was a smaller place, and they'd managed to have as fascinating a conversation of the kind he's been having with Crowley. That had been all right. The second time it had been a tourist and his family, probably the kind of person who'd googled wine expert blogs before coming on the trip in order to feel educated. They'd glommed right onto Aziraphale and Warlock and had absolutely ruined their evening at Paradise Ridge. I'm sorry, I'm a miserable shit, he tells Warlock, and he can feel the tension in the room melt away. I'm sorry, they're being dicks about it. Warlock idly flips through the shots he's been collecting of Aziraphale on his tablet. Warlock has his extended permission to take whatever photos he likes, and he's very good at catching Aziraphale in flattering moments. As flattering as they can be, with his pale hair and full cheeks, 
and it isn't that the pictures are bad. I can argue, but it's easier to let them win this one. It's the feeling that they are winning far too many recently. Gabriel's had nothing but feedback for Aziraphale's bits and pieces of the book, all of them cheerfully negative. The growing blog audience just has Aziraphale more on edge. It's an awkward place to be at the moment, and it's already May. If the concept in his head isn't what Gabriel is looking for, then how on earth will he manage to find something that works? It's just that Aziraphale has so few lines. He does his best to be accommodating, more than, on nearly everything Gabriel asks of him. Here, Warlock slides the tablet over. This one. It's Aziraphale in profile, his eyes shut, head thrown back in laughter. He's at ecstasies, two glasses of red in front of him, and Crowley's shoulder and arm at the edge of the photograph, blurred. Of all the photos, Aziraphale thinks, maybe he doesn't mind that one so much. He looks relaxed in a way he doesn't in any of the other photos. It isn't a coincidence that Crowley's there, making it happen. Fine, Aziraphale says. His fingers come out to trace his own face, a bit in amazement. He knows he isn't much to look at, but he looks happy in this one, in that sort of way he doesn't often see in himself. Warlock gives him that smirk he has when Aziraphale has done something obvious, but says nothing, just nods and takes the tablet back to add the photograph to Aziraphale's latest article. To make up for it, Warlock takes him into Sonoma Valley and ignores Michael's list of suggestions. Instead, they wind their way down side roads and dirt paths, looking for the out-of-the-way places that delight Aziraphale so. He loves the big roads with winery after winery, of course, but there's something so fun about finding places, and they're often quite good. Their first stop is at Buena Vista, which is apparently a historical site as well as a winery. Warlock drifts around taking photographs while Aziraphale chats with the tender behind the tasting bar. They've a fine selection of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Zinfandel, and it's the Grand Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon that Aziraphale absolutely falls in love with. It's full of spices that complement the dark red berries in his mouth, almost like the wine has been mulled or flavoured with some sort of rich chocolate dessert. It's impeccable. He purchases two bottles to take home, along with some of their selection Pinot Noirs. 
Is it uncouth to ask a viticulturalist to come taste wines that he hasn't grown and made? It can't be that taboo, Aziraphale thinks, remembering that Crowley had happily had whatever they'd opened the night they'd fallen asleep in his sitting room. He just wants to know what it is that's different in the grapes that makes these Pinot Noirs so bright with red fruits. Is it soil? Sun? Crowley would know. From there, they drift down a side road and into Patrick Rose Sonoma, a delightfully small winery that, as Raphael learns, purchases most of their grapes from vineyards who don't intend to process the wines themselves. He's learned a bit about this side of the business, but he happily takes notes as his bartenders, Delia and Connor, explain how they choose the regions of grapes to buy and how they blend them into their wines. All of their reds are a bit light for Aziraphale's tastes. He prefers them as bitter as possible, thick with tannins, but the whites are crisp and clear and will be perfect on a hot day. He buys three. At this point, Aziraphale is happily buzzed. A proper wine tasting isn't much wine, to be fair, but he does like to sample in comparisons. Flights that are all the same type, for example, or a flight of dark reds that he can taste against each other. Warlock's grinning as Aziraphale half flops into the passenger seat with a satisfied sigh. Another, Warlock asks him, but Aziraphale's day drunk and happy and ready to head home. He thinks he has another article and maybe some more book words in him, especially if he can open up one of today's Pinot Noirs for additional inspiration. Most tasting wheels, while generic, are excellent places to start. The first step is to learn to sort the flavours in your mouth into basic categories. Is it fruit, floral, spice, soil or mineral? You aren't going to know at first. Understand, this is okay. Enjoy it. Enjoy not knowing the difference between currants and plums. Enjoy the spritz of the mineral tang without being able to name it. Spend your time listening to the wines instead. Listen with your tongue and your taste buds until you can hear and feel what they're trying to be. Learn the differences between a Cabernet Sauvignon and a Pinot Noir. Identify the differences between two different Chardonnays. Compare a Pinot Gris with a Gewürztraminer. You'll start to recognize when a wine has a vanilla story to tell, or a smoky whisper, or a bouquet of strawberries to offer. Is this what they want? Is this the book you want to read? There isn't a story that can teach someone to taste a wine. 
Only experience and discussion and knowledge. I can't write a book about how to do what I do. I can really only write the results and hope it inspires someone to learn on their own. It all begins with the mouth, and every tongue is different. Even Crowley has said he doesn't taste for berries or roses. He's the vintner and gardener. He looks for the soil, the dew, the sun. I wonder whether I can learn to taste it. Whether my mouth can learn the tricks of his. Oh, dear God, what am I writing? Aziraphale realizes a few hours and a bottle of wine later that he may be a bit too drunk to work on the book tonight. Crowley invites them down a few days later, saying ecstasies is empty and they may as well come help finish up Brian's croissant sandwiches because they won't last. Warlock happily drives. Apparently his little group of friends is staging some sort of nonsense with video games in the break room and Haziraphale rationalizes that if Warlock is attending, he should as well. He can't help but watch for, and note, the way Crowley's face lights up when they enter. The hopeful thing in his chest wrenches a bit with a warm, tense glow. Crowley has his sunglasses on, and he isn't exactly smiling, but the reaction flashes across his face nonetheless. Relief, with a bit of joy, a comfortable relaxation of the jaw. Aziraphale wouldn't have seen it, except that he's watching for it. His instincts know, even if he won't think about it yet. Aziraphale settles into what is becoming his stool and looks around. He can hear Warlock's chums in the back rooms. Anathema is puttering around at the refrigerators, rearranging something, and there's a banging from the kitchen that probably signifies either Newt or Brian. And there's Crowley, now grinning at him as he sits, leaning over his elbows across the bar. Crowley's dressed for today's surprising blast of heat. A loose black silk shirt, so sheer Aziraphale is deliberately not looking at his chest, with the sleeves rolled up past his elbows. His jeans are a charcoal grey and his hair is pulled half back and he looks delectable. Hey, angel, he says, and Aziraphale feels his face flush. He's wearing a short-sleeved linen shirt with his usual trousers and feels oddly exposed, even though he's quite sure he'd be able to see Crowley's nipples if he were to look. He settles further into the stool with a happy little sigh. Ah, hello, Crowley. What's your flavor tonight? Oh, 
host's choice. Aziraphel tells him just to watch that little smile bloom across those thin lips. He's acknowledged before that Crowley's certainly a good-looking man. But for some reason, it's hitting harder now, this warm day in May. Aziraphale can watch Crowley's arms through the silk, shifting as he pours, and he can feel it stirring in his chest behind the fondness. Aziraphale has always appreciated a good aesthetic. He admires handsome people all the time with a generally well-meaning air. But he's somehow surprised at the way the attraction is suddenly stirring in his gut, now watching Crowley pick up two wine glasses and bring them his way. Surprised? Suddenly? He's been attracted to Crowley from the very beginning. Aziraphale knows. But he prefers this narrative, where it's crept up on him, because it lets him pretend he's been a perfect gentleman. Take a picture, Angel, Crowley tells him, grin going sly, and Aziraphale rolls his eyes. He isn't quite too sorry to be caught at it, though, because it allows Crowley to give him an eye over in return. Aziraphale preens at that, even if he knows Crowley's just doing it for fun. Don't think you've had the Sauvignon Blanc yet, Crowley says as he sets the glasses down. Lion's Den, 2015. Not my best, but not a bad year for it, all things considered. Aziraphale swirls it around to watch the lees. It's light, possibly paler than any other wine he's had from ecstasy so far. He can smell the brilliant tang of stainless steel aging alongside citrus and the tart bite of bright green apple. Oh, this is zesty! Crowley snorts and says, <laughs> Did you really just say the word zesty out loud? But Aziraphale isn't listening, because he's taken a sip and, as always, the wine flavours are slowly unfurling into an explosion on his tongue. It's nearly fizzy the way it unfolds. Sharp, but in the best way a white can be, cutting through Aziraphale's taste buds with bright, bold acid. He can taste the greenness that a soft blanc usually carries underneath it. Freshly cut grass, possibly the neutral wet of celery. The undertones carry its sparkling flavours across the palate, and by the time he swallowed, Aziraphale feels like he's just had a shot of espresso. Not in taste, but in a way where he feels more awake than he did before. Crowley, as usual, is watching him. Aziraphale can feel those eyes as they track the twisting of his mouth, 
the movement of his throat as he swallows. He wants to think it's flattering, but how could a creature like Crowley be at all interested in someone like himself? Crowley's watching for his reaction, obviously not for his pleasure. That's certainly something different, he tells Crowley, with residual taste zinging across his tongue. Most of your wines don't shout quite like that. Crowley cackles. <laughs> that would be the early harvest, he tells Aziraphale. 2015, everything was coming early, so we jumped on the solve as early as possible to give the other grapes as long as we could. Early Sauve Blanc has a thinner skin, less sugars, more sharpness. It's very upfront. That's a good phrase, Aziraphale tells him, taking another tentative sip. This has to be Stella in the heat. That's why I poured it, Crowley says, making a gesture that encompasses Aziraphale's short sleeves and his own translucent shirt before ending in a knowing smirk. How are you handling our first bit of the heat wave? Aziraphale grew up in London, where 65 degrees Fahrenheit is average and 80 is stifling. I'm not quite sure I would survive your summers without air conditioning, he tells Crowley. But this small piece of it is quite comfortable, as long as it doesn't linger. Won't stick around now, Crowley says, taking a long sip. But we'll break the 90s in July or August. You'll see. Aziraphale shudders dramatically. And I'll be here where it's reasonable. Or at home, his brain says, but he's sure Crowley understands what he means. Wanted to do something different with this one, Crowley tells him, swirling his own glass. The 2016 isn't nearly as bright, but... So the Sauve Blanc is one of the few places here that's high-density planted. The Syrah is too, and a bit of the Pinot. It changes the way we harvest them. Have to make some very quick decisions. Aziraphale takes another sip and swirls it around in his mouth. Sometimes that can change a taste somewhat, making sure the wine hits every section of the mouth's taste buds, letting each fraction of the flavor resonate fully. He gestures with a hand for Crowley to go on, but the other man raises an eyebrow and smiles. Will you still be here in September? There's something in Crowley's voice that makes Aziraphale swallow quickly and glance up at the other man. It's almost like... Crowley's almost 
too casual, the way he's leaning against the bar and not looking at Aziraphale and keeping his voice remarkably even. Aziraphale wants to think he's imagining it, but he's always been good at reading people and he can't really ignore the voice telling him that this is a real question. Yes, he says, and it comes out softer than he means to. September's the end of the stay. We leave sometime in early October. Crowley stares at him for a second, and Aziraphale wishes he could see Crowley's eyes behind those glasses. He can't read this response, and he desperately wants to. Good, Crowley says decisively, straightening up as if he's decided something. You'll see harvest then, some of it anyway. You can even come help. It'll be grand. And Aziraphale hears the same thing in Crowley's voice, that forced casual note that doesn't quite match up with the way he feels Crowley looking at him. He could be imagining all of this. He doesn't think he is. I'd quite like that, my dear, Aziraphale tells him, and he can't even lie to himself about the way Crowley's shoulders relax just a little bit at his smile. So, Aziraphale thinks to himself a number of glasses later, so, so, so he has a thing for Crowley. This is not a surprise, but Aziraphale will let it be. A sudden rush coming on him all at once. He's a writer. He is a master of rephrasing. Crowley, who has vanished into the mysterious basement to dig up some bottle he absolutely has to open for Aziraphale, declaring it necessary for the enjoyment of their evening. It's quite... adorable is the only word that's coming to Aziraphale's mind, and that's quite alarming in its own way, and not only because he thinks Crowley would absolutely despise it. There are plenty of ways he can deny this to himself tomorrow. Aziraphale has played this game before many times, and he knows what to tell himself. It's the appreciation of a physical form. It's the joy in having a friend who doesn't care who he works for. It's the over-fondness one has when one only has one local friend. And there's absolutely no evidence Crowley is at all interested in someone like Aziraphale. All of these are lovely excuses Aziraphale can use in the morning to talk himself out of this. 
For now, he looks into his glass and thinks about Crowley. He allows himself to wonder. What would it be like to take Crowley into his bed? To have that chaotic joy, that unbridled intensity focused on him and him alone. Aziraphale shivers at the thought. Delicious, that. He would unwrap Crowley like a gift. Bestow decadence on that sharp body, pay tribute to the expressive face and beautiful eyes. The image in his head is incredibly powerful. Would he have Crowley as a summer lover? Nights spent between the sheets, days spent drinking wine? Idyllic. No strings, no expectations, just long hours spent together in all possible ways. A pleasant goodbye at the end of his stay, perhaps an exchange of phone numbers. No. Aziraphale has done this too many times. This is a happy fiction he's writing in his mind. There will be no easy, painless separation. Aziraphale drinks far too deeply for that ever to be true. There's a scattering of noise by the stairs, and Crowley explodes from the basement, two bottles of wine under his arm and a triumphant grin on his face, and Aziraphale feels his breath catch in his throat. Heavens, but Crowley's beautiful like this, long-limbed and eager. Even his affectatious swagger across the tasting room to the bar is fond, appealing, as if Crowley offers a gift. Crowley sets the bottles down on the bar and leans in, a bit too close. Aziraphale must still be lost in his wandering, because for a second he's leaning in as well, a bit too eager, wanting to taste. Aziraphale catches himself. He freezes. Crowley's raised an eyebrow at him, Curious, perhaps unoffended, and Aziraphale smiles up at his friend, friend, with what he hopes is a blandly polite expression. What have we here? Crowley's gaze stays on him for a moment more and then flicks away, abrupt, and Aziraphale can feel the mood change as he turns. Here's an old bottle of Lion's Den, Crowley tells him. 2012. I didn't even know what I was doing. And whites are interesting about aging anyway. Let's crack it open and see whether it's worth drinking. And the other? Aziraphale watches as Crowley's expert hands send the twist down into the cork then wedge the opener against the lip of the bottle and pull. Long, slender fingers, 
strong forearms. Now that he's opened the book in his mind, he can't stop staring. Oh, that's Adam and Eve. Oldish. Crowley wriggles out the cork and leans in to fill Aziraphale's empty glass. I'm a bit off the white after this glass. Crowley! Aziraphale starts, even though he doesn't mean a single word of it. You can't just keep opening your entire reserve collection for when I'm here. Save some of these delicacies for yourself. Have you ever heard yourself talk? Crowley murmurs, amused, as he downs the last swallow in his glass and fills it with the 2012 lion's den. Don't worry about it. It's not as much fun drinking them alone, you know. A quick glance over the rim of the sunglasses, mismatched eyes twinkling. Hard to make friends when you're this busy, Angel. Luckily, you keep showing up. With bribes like this? Aziraphale glances up at Crowley through his lashes. We are on our way to everlasting friendship, I'd say. Crowley shoots him another glance over the dark lenses, this one a bit unreadable. Plenty more where this comes from, he says, and flashes that crooked grin Azira felt so fond of. It's physical. It must be. It's simply the draw to Crowley's attractive form, the angles of his body and lines of his face. It's only physical. Aziraphale is allowed to appreciate as long as it changes nothing. They tell me that it's the soil that makes California wines. Then again, there are a hundred different variables I've heard for it. The soil, the sun, the rain, the fog that comes off of the sea, the hills, the flatness. In obvious truth, it's a balance, details knit together like delicate lace. But the soil in the Russian River Valley is unique, I'm told, and is responsible for the riot of varieties seen in its wines. There is shale, sandstone, clay, volcanic ash over eroded bedrock. The soils here have names. Altamont, Sebastopol. Goldrich soil is their unique blend of fractured sandstone and sandy loam and is ideal for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Within California, there are 107 American Viticultural Areas, AVAs, regions that can be labeled with a distinct viticultural identity. The Russian River Valley is only one of the AVAs that make up Sonoma, let alone the state in its entirety. 
And even within the Russian River Valley itself, I've seen dozens of types of wines, without even acknowledging the number of Meritage blends and old wine labels that exist alongside the others. I found that even from a single vineyard, the same type of grape can be grown in two different places, two different manners, two different ways, and will create two distinctly different tastes. Am I too set in my ways to be here? I'm a creature of comforts. This trip inspires and intrigues me like nothing else has, and yet it's still within my comfort zone. Wine and food and a luxurious bed. Even this period will come to an end and I'll return to the familiarity of a life lived the way it's always been lived. This is a risk, I tell myself. I'm taking a leap, here, going off script to taste wines that are new to me and write a book in the process. And yet, how much of a leap can it be? I've the same people combing my posts for jargon. The same readers clamoring for detail. I've the same bastards pushing my words to be more commercial, more marketable. Has anything changed other than my environs? I write about the new, about the variety and the life and the tastes, but do I remain the same? <laughs> 